Welcome to What Do You Believe? You're here because you're curious. I love asking people this question, what do you believe? We all believe in something. And perhaps you're asking yourself this question and you're here because you are curious, like me. Thank you for joining me and I'm really excited. Thank you, Dr. Kramer, for joining me today. I know you are extremely busy, so I'm incredibly grateful. I think it's important to mention how we connected or rather reconnected. We went to grammar school together, first through eighth grade at Sacred Heart School in Bayside, Queens, shout out. And we have not spoken in over 35 years and we reconnected over Facebook, which is incredible. Love it. Love Facebook. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. And after I read your post, I had to reach out and ask you to come on the show. You are the medical director of the ICU at the John Murr Walnut Creek Medical Center in California, and you specialize in pulmonary critical care. Yes. I'm just so grateful. Thank you for coming on to talk Thank about- Thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank, Thank you. you. It's good to be here. It's so good to see you. So good. Same, same. This is just incredible. I love it. it. So I always begin the conversation with the question, what do you believe? So um, I believe in patient-centered care, um, period. Uh, I think you can never go wrong in the medical world if you put the patient first. Um, And it sounds trivial to say because I think People who don't practice medicine probably don't know what I mean. Um, But what I mean is if you listen to the patient, really listen to them, they will tell you what's wrong every time. Um, In in this sort of tech-centric world, we start to rely on tests and scans and things like that. But the, the basic bottom line is in the history, the patient will tell you what's wrong. The physical exam will tell you what's wrong. Um, And I think if we revert back as we take care of patients to putting them at the center of anything that we do, any project that we do, anything that we do on a performance improvement level, um, we'll always be in the right. Mm. Um, and And that's primarily as a physician, that's what I believe. Um, and as a and as a person, I think you know, as a woman, a wife, and a mom, mm-hmm. uh, I also believe that just as the patient comes first professionally, family comes first um, interpersonally, yes, and yes. there are ways to prioritize both. Um, a lot of younger women uh, talk to me about how can you have a family and and also be a professional. And um, I think you have to be all in, in both realms. When I'm at work, I'm all in. Um, You know, I don't worry or stress or have mom guilt. And when I'm home, you know, I'm making big ziti, you know, or, (laughs) and I'm going to, you know, um, watch my daughter practice volleyball or, or, you know, uh, whatever. And I don't stress about work. And I think a big part of that is um, being able to feel confident that my family's well taken care of when I'm not there and that work is well taken care of when I'm not there. Um, Amazing. So during this time of COVID and everything that you said about, you know, the patient comes first, how does this relate to this moment in history? So um, COVID um, is a very 
different kind of infection. You know, uh, in in the pulmonary critical care world, we take one of our main jobs is to take care of serious infections, uh, whether they affect the lungs or other parts of the body. And COVID is no exception in that way. Mm. Um, but COVID is different because all of the things that we normally do in the intensive care unit to take care of patients with respiratory failure from an infection don't really work very well for patients with COVID. Mm -hmm. And it's incredibly frustrating for those of us who are focused on saving lives because in critical care, um, the definition of critical care is um, somebody with an organ failure and we're trying to save that person. Um, so with COVID, um, it's, it's a different kind of condition. And I like to say, that we're literally building the airplane as we're flying it. Um, because the, the types of things that we consider standard of care just don't apply in this, in this um, form of respiratory failure from COVID. Um, and so we've, we've changed our paradigms. Um, we've changed how we approach patients. Uh, and, and I think, you know, there's less quote unquote protocol and less written in the literature about this because it's happening, we're living it um, every day. Yes. And so I think what's really important is every bedside that we're at, every patient encounter, whether you know, we're in our PPE, we're trying to tell patients they're going to be okay, um, you know, and and trying to help them through it in the best possible way we can. Um, we need the community, we need the world at large to understand that when it filters down to severe respiratory infection, this is not just a flu, this is not just pneumonia, this is not like anything else that we've seen. Um, and everyone needs to understand that the patients in the beds could be them, could be their loved one, could be their, their parent or grandparent, um, and needs to treat it accordingly needs to be everyone needs to have in mind who's in the bed you know it's not just some person who had quote unquote comorbidities this is any of us and um we're doing the the very best we can and we have found some things that help but you know a typical length of stay on a ventilator is you know, for a normal infection, maybe something like five days or seven days, these patients are staying on ventilators for three, four, five, and six weeks. Wow. Um, and, and it's a completely, and very sick on the ventilator during those times. So I think what people have to understand is just like we put the patient first, they have to understand that that could be them as well and um, do everything they can to prevent infection. Right. So it's not just having an underlying already existing situation yeah, it's not. that puts you in that bed. Right. It's not. I, right. I, I, you know, having um, medical conditions, certain medical conditions like diabetes or cardiovascular disease, um, those patients seem to be um, impacted with greater frequency and tend to be sicker. Patients who are immunocompromised because they're on chemotherapy or medications for things like autoimmune disease obviously will also be more affected. Um, but we've seen patients who are um, 
you know, young in their 30s and 40s, no prior medical conditions, um, come in and be very sick as well. Um, and you know, yeah, the numbers may not be as high as they are for our older patients, um, but it happens. And uh, and I think it's it's not the kind of thing that you can discount just because you're younger. Right. Right. So just today, there's there's information that's come out that there's, of course, this strain, this variant that's coming out that's attacking the younger generation. Can you yes. talk about what's what's true and what's not? I mean, the truths and the falses of falsehoods of, of this of this disease. Yeah, I, I think we still don't know enough about what's happening with um, with younger people in general um, uh, and children in particular. I think the there, there's still more to learn about children. I mean, there, there definitely have been some kids affected by COVID who wind up in the ICU with, you know, a more aggressive form of respiratory failure. But in general, it's not as common as it is in older folks. Um, and, you know, older, older people in their adult years. Um, the virus can change and mutate um, and that's that's part of it too is that you see different expressions of it and that's common with any infectious agent as it as it makes its way through uh through the community and and the population is that things can um things can change mm -hmm. um at, at this point you know the the there was a fear that um children younger than 12 would act as asymptomatic carriers to um susceptible adults and and you know, I think that's still a very real possibility. I think we just don't know enough yet, um, uh, you know, about that. Uh, I, I can also tell you that for kind of the young adult um, range uh, of of patients, you know, that's that's the age group that seems to not mask as much and seems to still be conducting themselves as business as usual. I mean, we're seeing lots of um, you know, video of, of college kids just sort of acting like this is fine. Yeah. Um, and I think time will tell, I, I just don't know, you know, where that's going to land us. A lot, a lot of those patients might have mild disease and a lot of them could get very sick. Right. So. Right. So as the head of ICU, you're faced with life and death every single day. How, how is this affecting you and your colleagues? Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, one thing to keep in mind is that, you know, we went into this field knowing that this day might come. Mm -hmm. um, and so some of my close friends in um, critical care medicine and I, you know, we say, well, you know, it's our time. You know, this is this is what we were trained to do. Um, this is this is what we've been, you know, preparing for. Um, so in, in some ways, uh, our, our personality types and, um, what, what we like to do in medicine, um, sort of fits very well for prepping for a pandemic like this. Mm. Um, at the start of things, uh, when we were reading the accounts from Italy about, uh, how horrible and, and, unthinkable some of the conditions were that they were struggling with, um, we started our local preparation, keeping in mind worst case scenarios. And we were reading things like, um, you know, 
they were having pathologists and radiologists running non-invasive ventilators and giving them like a little booklet to read, you know, because they were running out of physicians. Um, you know, people who are non-clinical, you know, oh. managing clinical scenarios. Uh, and we said, you know, what do we need to do to escalate and 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 ramp up? All right. And and our um, I, I'm, I'm very proud of what we were able to accomplish in a very short amount of time. So there's there's a group of about 18 of us um, intensivists, and and you know we uh, staff two hospitals here in Northern California. Um, we do have a, an in-house intensivist program. So that, that having that in place already made some of our approach to the pandemic easier than it would have been otherwise. Um, and uh, so our our response to it was really internal ramping up and, and placing our folks uh, more strategically in the ICUs, mm -hmm. and then also building a partnership with colleagues who are strongly clinical, but maybe not pulmonary critical care. Um, so our anesthesiology colleagues, our surgical colleagues, um, we were able to bridge uh, and have uh, some plans for physician ramp up, and it happened very quickly. Um, and I think, if anything, I would say that the pandemic has affected us in a way that sort of removed some of the politics of cross-discipline collaboration. Um, we sped up that collaboration. We, you know, we got a, a ramp up plan with an airway team with our anesthesia colleagues in place within three days, which would have been unheard of. It would have involved numerous committee meetings in the past. Um, so I think that was positive. And, and the other positive side of this is, is really seeing um, how we all work together as a group of intensivists and, and you know, having each other's back and you know, um, sharing information in a way that um, is different than it, than it used to be. Um, so we're, we're stressed, but we're also helping each other tap out <laughs> you know, um, and, and saying, you know, hey, I got this, don't worry, go home and get some rest, um, and, uh, and, and taking care of each other and making sure that people aren't burning out. Right. And what is the situation in California? I mean, we're reading very difficult and you know, dire, a dire situation. What, what, what can you tell us? Well, you know, I'm here in Northern California. Um, I'm in the East Bay of San Francisco. Um, and things are definitely ramping up on the daily right now. Uh, but we're not as um, impacted yet as uh, our, our colleagues in Southern California. Uh, I'm hearing things like they're, they're run, you know, they literally ran out of hospital beds and they're managing patients in a chair, um, that sort of thing. So um, that's, that's happening down in Orange County. I heard from one of my anesthesia friends down there. Um, here locally, uh, we, we, we have um, operational plans to expand intensive care outside the walls of the ICU, um, but we haven't had to cross those walls yet. Um, we're uh, definitely, this is not a normal winter. Um, we are um, seeing, aside from, from the COVID surge, um, we're also seeing a lot of critical care that's non-COVID and it's all very acute. Um, so, you know, we've, I, I was working um, just the last few days and, uh, you know, we had 37 intensive care patients at one hospital. That's all together. Um, and, you know, 24 of them were COVID. 
Um, the other hospital, um, for whatever reason, not quite as many, um, but the but the ramp ups coming, and it's every night we're getting new cases um, of sick COVID, and the patients that are coming in now are are quite ill. Um, Mm -hmm. sort of wind up on high flow oxygen very quickly. Um, our, our way of sort of managing the bed situation has been to kind of prop up a new step down COVID unit um, that's not intensive care, but it's not as stable as kind of a regular hospital ward. And um, that's been able to decompress our ICUs a little bit. Unbelievable. Wow. I mean, this is this is just. It must be you. You just must be on overdrive twenty four seven. Yeah, yeah. It's I. You know, I I dream about patient placement, <laughs> where yeah. we're going to put people, and um, you know, it's 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 definitely weighing heavily. Hmm. Mm. What could you say about how this situation has been handled? I mean, I, not to get too political about it because we, you know, we're not going to go there. But I mean, in terms of, you know, what now we've now we know we've, we're in it, and and what could we do next time that's better than what we've done this time? Yeah, and, and you know, God I forbid think, there is a next time. Right. Exactly. Exactly. You know, I think the. I think the the biggest issue is the individual freedom piece that people feel about this pandemic. You know, people feel that their freedoms are being limited because they're being asked to put a mask on um, instead of normalizing it and just making it universal. I mean, just, just the simple act of wearing a cloth mask, if everyone's doing it, the risk of spread is, is greatly reduced. And the problem is, you know, um, just out in the community here where people are actually pretty good with masking, um, you know, people have it down below their nose or, you know, they're walking into the gas station and they don't have their mask on. It, you know, it, it's, it's not as, um, I mean, I, I've heard of other communities where there's, there's a, just a tendency not to mask at all. And around here, people are doing it, but I think that there's less universality to it. Um, you know, the, the staying at home, uh, we have a stay at home order right now that was issued by our governor. And, uh, you know, I, I, I see long lines, you know, going, going into Target and Walmart and, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, the big department stores aren't closed. I, I don't really think that it feels very much like a, like a stay at home. Mm -hmm. You know, the stay at home in the beginning of the pandemic felt more significant, um, but people are getting burned out. Uh, and, and I think this is, a, this is the critical time for people to just say, okay, you know, we're, we're not going to see grandma at Christmas. You know, we're going to, we're going to talk to her over zoom and it's going to be fine so that grandma can have another Christmas next year. Um, you know, and, and hearing about other countries where the, where the rate is almost zero, they, they did have more universal, um, application of stay at home and, um, quarantining for travelers into the country. And I think that's what we should have done. Like Australia. Yes. Yes, exactly. Right, right. So now with the advent of the vaccine, can you speak to how that is being administered and anything that could be misunderstood about the vaccine at this point because it sure. happens so rapidly? Sure. I think there's a lot of, you know. Yeah. I, I think yeah, I think what's really important about this vaccine for people to understand is that um, it 
it was produced so quickly for a couple reasons. One is uh, they ramped up production in parallel with the research trials. So in, in general, um, production wouldn't typically be allowed for a vaccine until all the research had been completed. And so you wind up having this phased process. In this case, um, the federal government actually placed, um, you know, uh, basically financed simultaneous production with testing. Um, and the, the thought being, well, if the testing proved that it wasn't safe and effective, yeah, they're going to lose a lot on the production side. Uh, but they were confident that the testing would wind up uh, being positive. And so that's the reason why, one of the reasons why it was, it was so quick. Um, and the other is, I, I think a lot of the usual logistics were sort of eliminated um, in, in the production of the vaccine. Mm -hmm. um, it was prioritized. And, but if you look at the, the data and, and who was studied and, and what the incidence was of infection and the safety profile, um, and it's readily available for people to review, um, I think people should feel very confident. The final thing is, you know, this is a new type of technology new type of vaccine, but the technology has been investigated for many years. So an mRNA vaccine is very novel. And, and the nice thing about it is um, in, in the past, vaccines have always been um, aimed at uh, sort of producing uh, an inactivated virus, um, or, you know, or or um, or a live virus, and uh, or and and sort of vaccinating against um, the deactivated parts and having to purify it. mRNA is an easier process in terms of production, mm -hmm. um, and uh, and and I'm very hopeful that this means that future vaccines will be similarly easy to produce and not take years and years. Uh, but hopefully. Th this could be applied to um, to other vaccines in the future. Incredible. So <clears throat> it's happening. You are administering this vaccine and anything, yeah. is there anything that you can tell us in terms of, are there any side effects or anything of the sort? Well, you know, so we, we our medical system started vaccinating healthcare workers. So that was sort of tier one. Yeah. Um, and many of us have gotten our vaccines um, and there, there have been some minor side effects. Um, I, I had a sore arm for a few hours and that was about it. Um, some other folks had some fatigue and um, some muscle aches, um, chills. Um, all of it was gone within eight hours. Those are considered minor side effects and uh, are evidence that your immune system's getting activated. Um, so in a way, having those symptoms is actually a, a positive sign. Right. Um, the the risk the the risk of serious vaccine side effects is about one to two and for every vaccine administered. So serious side effects are not chills or aches. Uh, those those are things that are are more concerning. And and so the rate is about one to two per million vaccines delivered. Incredible. So when do you think that most of us will be able to get, they're saying mid-summer for, for most of us to get vaccinated by. What do you, what's your prediction? Yeah. I, I, I think mid-summer um, is conservative. I think that it's possible for people to even get vaccinated by the springtime, I'm hoping. Um, you know, it's, it's just, um, I think we, we wound up getting 
more vaccines than we were hoping to get uh, in terms of the, the numbers that we're able to vaccinate within our health system. Um, so I, I'm, I'm optimistic. You know, I think late spring, early summer, hopefully we can, we can get everyone vaccinated who, who would like it. And I think everyone should take one. Exactly. Well, that's, yeah. I mean, there you have it. I mean, it's just, you, you, at this point, I'm sure that's what you would hope for seeing what you've been seeing. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Finally, Dr. Kramer, what would you like people to know? Is there anything that you just want to? Yeah, I, I think, I think, you know, getting, getting back to the patients, you know, um, most people don't get to take a tour of an intensive care unit and and go to the bedside of somebody who's sick. Um, Every single time uh, I I read some type of COVID denial post on Facebook or social media, I think to myself, what if you could come with me uh, and stand even outside of the room of somebody who has COVID? You know, uh, and, and see what we're doing. Um, see how sick they are. Um, see how many days they've been in intensive care, and feel how how helpless some of us feel. You know, we we our job is to is to save people, and to to have a patient be on a hundred percent oxygen, not being able to oxygenate well, flipping patients onto their stomach just to get that last little bit of oxygen into them. I wish people could understand that uh, and understand that this is not just a flu. Um, this is not just something inconsequential. Um, it doesn't just affect other people. Um, and, and in reality, even if it, even if someone's unaffected by COVID, shouldn't we, um, think of others anyway, and think of people who have the chance of getting sick. Every single one of us has a family member who you could consider being at increased risk and, and, you know, or a loved one or someone we respect. And um, rather than saying this doesn't apply to me, think about who it might apply to. So that's a question of humanity. It really is. Really wow. Is. wow. You've touched my heart so much. Thank you so, so much for this incredible conversation. I've learned so much and I can't wait to, to share this. Thank, and thank you, you for all the heroic work that you're doing, you and your colleagues. You are the heroes. Thank you. Thank you. I, I really so greatly appreciate that. And I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you today. Thank you for listening to today's episode of What Do You Believe? Please remember to subscribe to the podcast on Apple or Spotify. We very much appreciate your continued support. Thank you. Thank you.